Thank you for listening to this production from New Life Presbyterian Church. If you'd like to find out more, visit newlifepca.org. The rest of you can open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 18. Uh, thanks to Pastor Brian for praying for our presbytery meeting coming up on <clears throat> Friday. Um, so presbytery is hosted on a rotating basis among the different churches in the presbytery. So I don't know, we got like 14 churches or so in the presbytery, central Indiana. And um, we meet four times a year, and so occasionally we get the opportunity here at New Life to host that meeting, and so that's going to happen this Friday. starts at 9 a.m. I want you to know that you're in, uh, welcome, actually, to, to visit if you'd like to come and observe and see how a presbytery meeting works. Uh, you can come here at New Life at uh, 9 a.m. Our meetings last throughout the day. Sometimes we have to deal with confidential matters, and we go into what's called executive session, and uh, in those times we ask those who are not members of the Presbytery to be dismissed, so that could happen, (laughs) and sometimes we're in executive session for quite a long time, so I'm not exactly promising how long you can be in the meeting, but I think this could be a meeting where um, executive session might happen on a limited basis, if at all. So, just want to extend that invitation, and um, thanks so much to, to Kyle and all of those who have been working so hard to get food and preparations ready for that day as we eat some breakfast food and lunch together as well. So Presbytery this Friday, please pray at the very least. If you could pray for that meeting, we'd really appreciate it. All right, Genesis chapter 18 is where we are <clears throat> as we are continuing to work our way through the life of Abraham as we go through the book of Genesis. If you don't have a Bible with you, you can find a paperback one in, uh, underneath one of the chairs in front of you. And our passage is on page 7. <clears throat> uh, sometimes it's said, a cliche, you've probably heard it, laughter is the best medicine. Laughter is the best medicine. I think a lot of us would probably agree with that. We, we love to laugh, right? I mean, who doesn't like to laugh? We have our favorite sitcoms, we have our favorite comedy movies that we like to watch, we like to hang out with funny people because we like to laugh. Um, There are actually physical and emotional benefits to laughing, I don't know if you know that, but Psychology Today says that frequent laughter can prevent heart disease, lower anxiety, and boost the immune system. So we don't just like to laugh, but laughing is actually good for us. And then at the same time, we know that there are times when we probably shouldn't laugh. Uh, At a funeral, for instance, there might be some laughter, but for the most part, we don't laugh at funerals. If you get pulled over by a policeman and he comes to your window, probably not the time to laugh. A friend comes to you and brings some very tragic, difficult news not, not the time to laugh. So there are proper times to laugh and improper times to laugh. And here in Genesis 18, we're going to see one of those occasions where laughter happens, perhaps not at the best time. And this laughter we're going to be looking at today is what I'm going to call kind of the laughter of cynicism. And it's a laughter that many of us have allowed out of our mouths from time to time. Not always wrong, I guess, but in many cases... Um, when we hear something that's too good to believe, you know, we just, we laugh, we, we scoff at it. Uh, some of us have developed a, a kind of a cynical attitude that expects the worst. And so when we hear something that's really good news, our disposition is just to dismiss it, and maybe to laugh at it, 
and to say, <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, right. That's the expression of the laughter of cynicism. Now, let's just admit it, friends. Um, in a fallen world that we live in, a disordered and broken world, it's very easy to fall into the laughter of cynicism. We've all experienced many disappointments. We know what it is to have our hopes unfulfilled. We know what it is to have our goals unachieved. And the result of these experiences can sometimes make our hearts hard. And even as Christians, even as believers, we can fall into a pattern of thinking where we have little expectation that God is going to do anything good for us again. Or at the very least, we have little expectation that God will do something big something great, something mighty. Hey, we're realists. We live in the real world, and we just don't look to God sometimes to do those things. Well, here we are, looking again at the life of Abraham. We're here in Genesis 18. A promise has been made to Abraham, as we've been learning week after week, this promise that Abraham and Sarah would have a child, and from that child would come a great nation, and all the nations would be blessed through that nation. That promise came to them 25 years earlier from the time we're seeing here in Genesis 18, and it's still unfulfilled. And yet here in chapter 18, God makes the promise again, and I think we should be prepared perhaps to excuse Abraham and Sarah if they respond to this promise with a little bit of cynicism. So let's see what they say, what they do, how they respond. If you are able, please stand. And I'm going to read Genesis 18, 1 through 15. Genesis 18, verse 1. And the Lord appeared to him, that's Abraham, by the oaks of Mamre as he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day. He lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing in front of him. When he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the earth and said, O Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. Let a little water be brought and wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree while I bring a morsel of bread that you may refresh yourselves and after that you may pass on since you have come to your servant. So they said, do as you have said. And Abraham went quickly into the tent to Sarah and said, quick, three seahs of fine flour, knead it and make cakes. And Abraham ran to the herd and took a calf, tender and good, and gave it to a young man who prepared it quickly. Then he took curds and milk and the calf he had prepared and set it before them, and he stood by them under the tree while they ate. They said to him, where is Sarah your wife? And he said, she is in the tent. The Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah your wife shall have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. Now, Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. The way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. So Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I'm worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? The Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you about this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. But Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. He said, No, but you did laugh. 
Holy Spirit, come and open our hearts and minds to behold wonderful things in your word. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. <clears throat> so three kind of central main characters in this passage. There's Abraham, there's Sarah, and there's God. And so we're going to look at this passage from the perspective of all three of these. So first of all, let's look and see Abraham's quickness to serve. It's the first thing we see, Abraham's quickness to serve in the first um, eight verses. So the passage opens, verse 1, with the Lord again, appearing to Abraham, and he appears in kind of a strange form. It's very clear at the beginning that this is a, the, the theological word is a theophany, it's an appearance of God, the Lord appeared, and Abraham here is sitting at the um, door of his tent, it's in the heat of the day, it's uh, frequent in these cultures to have kind of a siesta in the middle of the day, they've been working, so they're kind of taking uh, a break, and verse 2 tells us that as Abraham is sitting there, he lifts up his eyes, and suddenly there's three men just standing there, looking at him, and so... Um, we're told in various places throughout this that the Lord is speaking, and yet we're also told that there are these three men, verse 2. So what exactly is happening here? How is it that God is appearing to Abraham? And so there are some over the uh, course of church history who have said, well, this is clearly the Trinity because we've got three men and we've got God and we as Christians believe that God is one but exists in three divine persons. And uh, man, it's really tempting to want to believe that that's what this is saying, but you know, we have to always be careful about imposing on the Scripture what might not be there, but what we might want to see. I, I don't think that this really is uh, teaching the Trinity. I believe the Trinity. The Scriptures teach the Trinity. I don't think we can find it here, though, um, because if you skip down to verse 22, 18-22, it says, The men turned from there and went toward Sodom, but Abraham still stood before the Lord. So we'll get to that verse next week, but in verse 22, there seems to be a pretty clear distinction here between the men on the one hand and the Lord on the other. The men go ahead, the Lord remains back. So it seems better to interpret this as, um, as an appearance of the Lord with two angels with him, God accompanied by two angels to Abraham in verse 2, it appears as if there are three men before him. Um, but as we read through the story, it seems pretty clear that Abraham finally gets it and realizes, I'm, I'm talking to God. I mean, maybe at the beginning he just sees three men, and we don't really know when it kind of dawns on him that this is God himself. But one thing for sure is we see that Abraham is super eager to serve and care for these visitors. And part of that reason could be because he recognizes that this is God. Another part of the reason, however, is because in ancient culture at this time, hospitality was such an important virtue. And people did everything they could to take care of their guests. And that's what Abraham does. And you can see this in various ways, just with the, ver <clears throat> excuse me, the verbs that are used, like verse 2. He lifted up his eyes, looked, three men are standing in front of him. When he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them. He, he, he runs, he gets up, and he goes, he bows down in front of them, and he says in verse 3, he says, you know, stay here, take it easy, don't pass by me, we would love to have you here. 
And he goes on and says, you know, I'll get some water for you. You can wash your feet. I'll, I'll, get, some, I'll get some bread um, since you have come to your servant. So Abraham here considers himself a servant of his guests. But, but he's eager. You see that word run in verse 2. And then in verse 6 it says, Abraham then went quickly into the tent of Sarah. I mean, he's eager to serve. He's quick. He goes to Sarah and he says, Sarah, we got guests. Get some flour, knead it, make cakes. We got some people to take care of. And then in verse 7, we see that verb ran again. And then Abraham ran to the herd. He takes a calf. He chooses a good one. In many cases, Abraham might just tell his servants, bring a calf. But no, this is a calf that Abraham is going to choose himself. And he finds one that is tender, that's good. Um, he gives it to a young man to be prepared, takes curds and milk, curds and milk, curds in particular would have been a kind of a delicacy at this time. And so what Abraham is doing is laying out a royal banquet for his guests. He's choosing the, the best delicacies that he can find. He is sparing nothing. And then there in verse 3, you see just kind of his attitude. It's like, if I have found favor in your sight, don't pass by your servant. It's like, you know, Abraham's doing all this effort to serve his guests, but it's like in Abraham's mind, he's the one receiving the favor. It's like the people are doing him a favor by allowing him to serve them. And what an amazing, terrific example of warm, gracious hospitality. I've told you, <coughs> I think before, the story that comes out of this movie in 1987. It's a foreign movie, slow foreign movie, but it's called Babette's Feast. Uh, came out in 87, and a very interesting movie. It's about these two women, their sisters. They live in this kind of, um, this isolated village in Denmark, and they're kind of off on their own all by themselves, and they take in this refugee, this French woman as a refugee, they take her into her house. Uh, the woman is poor. She doesn't have anything. And um, these sisters take care of her. And time goes on. And they begin to kind of warm up to this woman. Babette is her name. And they, they love Babette. And then Babette enters some contest, I think. And she ends up winning a whole bunch of money. And so the sisters come to realize that. And, and they think, well, Babette's certainly not going to stay here. She's, she's won all this money. She's gone. She's going to go back to the big city and, and live her um, sophisticated life, but Babette says, what I want to do is prepare a meal for you, and they say, well, you know, you don't have to do that, but she says, no, I insist, and so then the movie goes on, and you just see Babette preparing this meal. She orders all of this food from Paris, has it sent in. She spends hours, I think maybe even multiple days in the kitchen preparing all of this food, and it's an amazing royal banquet with all of these delicacies and she lays it out for the sisters and they eat and they're just overwhelmed with how good this meal is <clears throat> and then the meal ends and they're like well <clears throat> I guess this is it Babette I guess you're 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 gonna leave now because you've got all this money and she says what money I spent it all on this meal I spent everything I want on this for you what a terrific example again of hospitality and the servant hearts that all of us ought to have for those who need a place. Remember what it says in Hebrews 13, <clears throat> do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers for thereby some have entertained angels unaware. 
This could be referring to Genesis 18. The writer doesn't actually say that, but it would seem that it's referring to Abraham and his hospitality. Friends, let's not forget the discipline, the the virtue of hospitality. Uh, The Bible places strong emphasis on it. It's a requirement for elders in the church to be hospitable. Uh, The scripture commands all believers to be hospitable. Rosaria Butterfield says this, let God use your home, apartment, dorm room, or front yard for the purpose of making strangers into neighbors and neighbors into family. Because that's the point, building the church and living like a family, the family of God. You know, there are people who might not come here on a Sunday morning, but they might come to your home, your neighbor's. Maybe there's a a lonely person in your neighborhood, maybe an immigrant, maybe a recently widowed woman. Maybe there's visitors to this church, you know, people come and they visit and they don't know really how to fit in. They feel a little bit awkward. They're looking for a place to belong. Make them belong. Reach out to them. Bring them over to your house. Prepare a meal for them and serve them. So let's let Abraham inspire us to be quick to serve. So that's the first thing I think we can learn from this passage, Abraham's quickness to serve, but now we see also, though, Sarah's slowness to believe. We see that this visit from these three visitors is actually really not about Abraham. It's about Sarah. And so in verse 9, they say to Abraham, where is Sarah, your wife? And Abraham responds, she is in the tent. And then verse 10, we have the Lord stating the promise again. I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. Now, there's a little more specificity here, right? He mentioned this in chapter 17, but now God is saying when this is going to happen, sometime next year. So we're starting to narrow it down, but it's basically a, a repeat of the promise that Abraham and Sarah are going to have a child. I mean, how many times have we heard this, right? I mean, actually, I went and reviewed and found out. It's in chapter 12, verses 2 and 7, chapter 13, verses 15, verse 15, chapter 15, verses 5 and 18, chapter 17, verses 16 and 19, and now here in chapter 18, verse 10. In all of those verses, God is reiterating over and over again His promise. And you just wonder if Abraham and Sarah are just saying, well, (laughs) thanks for the promise, but when is this going to happen? When are you going to actually do it, God? But I think we learn something very important here because apparently there's something lacking in Abraham and Sarah. But what we're seeing is God's relentless persistence of his people. He pursues us over and over again until we get it. And Abraham and Sarah, they're, they're apparently not getting it somehow. But God does not give up. And isn't that something that every one of us wants to know, that there's somebody in this world who won't give up on us? I mean, maybe you've had a husband or a wife give up on you. You've had a boss give up on you. You've had a, a best friend give up on you. I, I don't know what has happened, but there's one person who won't give up on you, and it's God. He comes at you over and over again. That's what Paul Tripp tells us here in his book, Lead. He says, God is willing to do the same thing in you and for you again and again until it takes root and flourishes. 
He is willing to say the same thing to you over and over again until you hear and live it. He patiently gives himself to the work he has begun in you, and he will patiently continue until his work is done. And I think that's what we're seeing here. God, again, in his relentless persistence, pursuing Abraham and Sarah. So what's Sarah's response? Well, verse 10 is the promise given, and it says at the end of verse 10 that Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. So uh, God is is standing there in, in human form. Sarah is behind him. Sarah hears what is being said, and so in verse 11 then, we're, we're reminded of what also we've been told a number of times, which is that Abraham and Sarah are old, so Abraham's about 99, Sarah's about 90, and um, the way of women has ceased to be with Sarah. That is, she is unable to have children, is what that means. And yet here's God again saying, this is what I'm going to do for you. And Sarah is just like, what, what are you talking about? Cynicism has begun to to get into her heart, and we see it in verse 12, Sarah laughed to herself. After I'm worn out, and my Lord is old, my husband that is, shall I have pleasure? This is really going to happen? I'm old, my husband's old, I've never been able to have children in my entire life, and now I'm going to have a child when I'm 90? And there's just this unbelief, and Sarah just laughs. But notice very carefully what it says. She laughed to herself. (laughs) She laughed to herself. She didn't laugh out loud. She didn't laugh so that anybody could hear her. But God heard it. God knew it. Verse 13, the Lord said to Abraham, Why does Sarah laugh and say, Shall I uh, indeed bear a child now that I'm old? This wasn't spoken out loud, and yet God knew what was in the heart of Sarah. God knows your thoughts and my thoughts. He knows what we're thinking. He knows the unbelief, the cynicism, the anger, the pride, the greed, the envy, the lust that are in our heart, the things that nobody else knows about. God knows. God knows it all. You know, you'll hear a lot of talk about us living in kind of a surveillance culture now where you'll hear these cities that have got surveillance cameras up all over the place and um, millions and millions of surveillance cameras. It's like they're watching us. You know, the government is watching us. And, of course, you know, marketers know what you bought on Amazon. You know, they know your last purchase. They're watching you. That's true. But you know what? They can't watch your thoughts. They don't know what you're thinking, but God does. God knows. Psalm 139, you know when I sit down and when I rise up, you discern my thoughts from afar, you search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways even before a word is on my tongue. Behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. Now friends, if that doesn't make you long for a Savior, I don't know what will. You have to know, you have to come to grips with the fact that it's not just your deeds that are held accountable before God, but your thoughts as well. And that should bring us all to our knees to say, Lord God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Well, the episode ends with um, Sarah denying that she laughed in verse 15. I didn't laugh, (laughs) she says, but well, God knows that she did. God knows all things. She was afraid 
didn't know how God would respond. God just repeats and says, no, no, you did laugh. Uh, This isn't getting past me, Sarah. I know you did. And so he offers this kind of gentle admonishment or rebuke. But we're seeing here in Sarah's just this kind of, this, this reluctance to believe. And just by way of application, friends, I just want to suggest, you know, how is it, or ask this question, how often do you think that you are driven more by cynicism than by faith? How often am I driven more by cynicism than by faith? You have somebody in your life, a, a hardened atheist, someone who just seems to have no interest in spiritual things. Are you praying for the person? Are you seeking to share the gospel with that person? Or have you given up? It's not going to happen. You've just convinced yourself. You see a marriage that's suffering, and you just, it just seems like this marriage is this close to ending, and you just say it's too far gone. There's no hope for it. Really? Have you grown that cynical that you're not going to continue to plead with God to fix that marriage? We look at our nation, and we... We long for revival, but we just see things getting worse and worse and the church growing smaller and smaller. We grow cynical, don't we? We just kind of give up. It's not going to happen. It's too far gone. Well, is it? I mean, if, if Sarah wasn't too far gone, our nation isn't too far gone. There's a passage here in Matthew 13 that's, that's very interesting. This is, uh, Jesus goes back to his hometown of Nazareth, and he's uh, there's his family members there, and, and they're talking about him, and they're saying, oh yeah, Jesus, oh isn't he that carpenter's son? You know, these are people who grew up with Jesus, and they've been kind of familiar with him, and, and they don't believe in him, and then it says at the end of Matthew 13, Jesus did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. He, 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 didn't, he didn't do it. It's not that he couldn't do it. It's not that he wasn't powerful enough to do it. But the people didn't think he could do it, so he didn't. That's what this passage is saying. So, has cynicism taken a root in your heart? I confess, it takes root in my heart. It does. I acknowledge it, and that's why we've got to hear this last point, which is about God's mighty power to save. The climax is in verse 14. <clears throat> in response to Sarah's slowness to believe, verse 14, God says, is anything too hard for the Lord? And then he says, at the appointed time, I'm going to return next year, Sarah shall have a son. But verse 14, is anything too hard for me to do? It can't, isn't it true that I can do anything? God says. Now, for those of you who are very careful thinkers, you might be saying, yeah, I mean, can God do anything. And and let me say, actually, friends, there are things God can't do, all right? God cannot lie, right? He can't sin. He's perfect. He's holy. He can't die. He can't make a square triangle. I mean, he, he can't do things that are just, you know, absurd, logically impossible. He can't create another God, Uh, He can't deny himself. I mean, the scriptures say that explicitly. He cannot deny himself. He cannot lie. So I think the better way to say this is that God can do anything that is consistent with his character, who he is, who he has defined himself to be, and in accordance with his purposes and his will, as those have been explained for us in scripture. He can do anything consistent with his character and purposes. 
And just because we see that God doesn't do something, it doesn't mean that he can't do that. But when we say, is anything too hard for God, we have to keep in mind the context of his character, who he is, and what he is intending to do in redemptive history. But the purpose here of Genesis 18, as God here is speaking to Sarah, is to show us that what is humanly impossible, in this case, a 90-year-old woman who's never had children having a child, what is humanly possible is divinely possible. That what you and I can't do on our own, God can do. That God can take what is laughable in one sense and make it believable. That's what God can do. This is not a promise, friends, that um, if you just believe strong enough that God will make you healthy, wealthy, and rich. We're not going to go with the prosperity preachers who promise instant relief from all suffering and trouble and all kinds of wealth if you just believe. No. And just because you say, you know, hey, I think I'm going to play in the NBA one day because with God anything is possible. <laughs> I mean, that's not the promise here. I mean, maybe you will make it in the NBA. Go for it if you think you can. But God is not promising an NBA career to you because he can do anything. That's, that's not the purpose here. What God is saying is that within the context of his kingdom, when it comes to his kingdom values, when it comes to his desire, his purposes in redemptive history, nothing is impossible. That he converts sinners. He can convert your hardened atheist friend. He can convert Muslims living in Muslim nations for centuries. He can bring a Muslim nation to bow the knee to Jesus. Can God do that? Yes. Growth and holiness. He wants you to grow in holiness. Yes, God can give you the power to gain victory over your pride, over your greed, over your envy, over your same-sex attraction. Can God give you power for that? Is anything impossible for him? In that regard, no. He can give you victory he can give you improvement he can give you growth we look at the church in america again can he revive us can he bring back a day when we can't fit the people in our sanctuaries they're standing out in the foyer waiting to get in and worship god can he do that yes can he give you a heart to love your enemy the person that you haven't been able to forgive for decades can he do that Yes, he can, because nothing is too hard for our God. I just wonder, friends, how, how much doesn't really happen because we don't believe it will? How much does God not do because we don't believe he can or that he will? You might say, you know, I, I want that kind of faith. You know, I just don't have it. I want to believe the scripture says this, faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of God. You have to devote yourself to the word, to sitting under the preaching of the word, to listening to the word read, to studying the word on your own, to gathering with brothers and sisters in Christ and opening up the scriptures and devoting yourself to it. The promise of the scripture is that's how faith grows. Faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of God. The great news in this story here in Genesis is that God fulfills his promises even when faith is weak. 
Because what we're going to find is that Sarah indeed will have a son. We're almost there, and we're going to see it happen pretty soon. Sarah has a son. She's going to name that son Isaac. And do you know what Isaac means? Laughter. <laughs> because God gets the final word. And centuries later, centuries later, after this incident, you know what? There's going to be another appearance of an angelic being who's going to talk to another woman who hasn't had a child. That woman is Mary. And that angel is going to promise to marry a son. Here, Sarah thinks this is impossible because she's never had children. Well, the promise to Mary is, Mary, you're going to have a son and you're not even going to have relations with a man. And yet you're going to bear a son. And his name will be Jesus. And he is going to come and save his people from their sins. Your sins of action, your sins of word, and even your sins of thought. All of them wiped clean in the shed blood of Jesus, the Savior born to a woman on Christmas Day. Nothing is too hard for him, friends. Let, let's proceed with faith. We can't obligate God to do everything that we want. It's true there are some things that he won't do, but I fear that he could do a lot more if we would live expecting not the worst, but expecting the best from a God who is this powerful. God, we thank you and praise you and acknowledge that you are mighty, mighty to save. And we thank you, Lord, for the mighty power that you have displayed, not only in sending your son, being born of a virgin, but in resurrecting him from the dead for us. Thank you, Father. Give us faith. Give us faith, Lord, we pray, as we seek to continue to move forward as your kingdom grows, looking for your glory to cover the earth as the water covers the seas. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.